This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Centralia Tragedy, Part 2. Are you an American? Between April and November of 1917, 3,000 labor strikes broke out across the country. The war had electrified the economy and halved unemployment, down to 8%. And as tends to happen when bosses need workers more than workers need them, the country was ripe for agitation. The IWW was one of the loudest voices in opposition to U.S. entry into the European war. As the socialist saying goes, a bayonet is a weapon with a worker at both ends. In their propaganda, the IWW encouraged workers to fight the class war here at home, not the capitalist war abroad. There was a more general sentiment in the country that this war, an ocean away, was none of our business, especially in the West and Midwest where there was a broad tendency toward isolationism. But once the U.S. entered into the war in April 1917, patriotism filled the air. To quell the labor uprisings, the Wilson administration drew battle lines. They negotiated concessions with the American Federation of Labor and brutally repressed the industrial workers of the world. They hit the IWW with a two-pronged attack. The 1917 Espionage Act was, much like the various criminal syndicalism laws, vague enough to arrest a ham sandwich if necessary, and was used against leftists of all stripes throughout the Red Scare. The beauty of a law like the Espionage Act, or charges like resisting arrest that are heavily used today, is that it doesn't matter if someone is truly in direct violation of the law as written. Even if you can't get a conviction, you can simply arrest them on the charges, imprison them for weeks or months, and then drop the charges and release them, or see them acquitted in court. By then, of course, the damage has been done, the strike broken, the union hall demolished, and the political expediency of such laws makes them powerful extra-constitutional tools. As Ralph Chaplin writes, the espionage law, which never convicted a spy, and the criminal syndicalism laws, which never convicted a criminal, were used savagely and with full force against the workers in their struggle for better conditions. The second punch was far more brutal and direct. On September 5, 1917, the Bureau of Investigation worked with local law enforcement to raid nearly every IWW office in the United States within a single day, seizing documents and materials right down to the paperclips. Wobblies were arrested en masse on espionage and criminal syndicalism violations. At the IWW headquarters in Chicago, 101 leaders were prosecuted and found guilty of over 10,000 individual violations of federal law, after just an hour of deliberation by a jury. It was an unprecedented level of mass, targeted political repression. As a result, wobblies across the country in small towns like Centralia had to carry on with little or no support from the national body. 1917 was a big year. While workers of all occupations were rising up everywhere, The Great War to End All Wars was shaping up to be the most horrific and deadly conflict in human history. Meanwhile, Tsar Nicholas II had mismanaged the war and his empire so badly that a horde of angry and hungry women 
had kicked off the most precipitous political revolution in history. With the Bolsheviks behind the wheel in Russia, the anti-communist and anti-labor sentiment in America reached ever new heights. This is the context in which the Wobblies opened a union hall in Centralia, Washington in the spring of 1918. It was their fourth attempt to establish some kind of presence in Centralia. In 1914, there was a wobbly effort to organize electrical workers, but the sheriff threw them out of town. In 1915, during a strike against the Eastern Railway and Lumber Company, workers showed up in Centralia demanding food. Turned down by the grocers, the men, led by IWW members, marched to the police station and declared that they would not leave town until they were fed. The chief of police then swore in 100 Centralia residents who, armed with pickaxe handles, rounded up the men and escorted them to the neighboring town of Chehalis. No one was ever punished for the illegal raid, which no doubt paved the way for future lawlessness. In fact, years later, members of the so-called Pickhandle Brigade were still bragging about running the Wobblies out of town. The Centralia Daily Hub printed a warning. Centralia has no need for or use for IWWism, and our advice to those of the fraternity who intend coming here is that they don't. Centralia won't stand for IWWism. Nonetheless, two years later, the workers set about establishing a union hall in Centralia. They faced such opposition that they had to use an alias on their lease agreement, but were still discovered and evicted. The following year, 1918, the IWW finally found a building in Centralia willing to have them, and they started to put down roots in the bustling town. Something to note about the IWW, and particularly those locals that consisted of lots of lumberjacks, is that many of their members were functionally homeless, and the Union Hall provided a level of comfort and stability they otherwise did not have. They could sleep there when they had nowhere to go, have meals and be social with one another after long and lonely months in the woods. They could be clean and dry for a while, before setting out again into the marshes and forests. They could attend rousing lectures and discussions on issues that affected their lives. They sang songs and shared jokes and listened to the Victrola. Books and publications on history, economics, science, and politics were available to read for free. The Union Hall was a place for relaxation and mental stimulation that couldn't be found elsewhere. So, naturally, it was a very important place to them. And Centralia was a very important place as well, right in the middle of lumber country, a hub city. There was no doubt that having an outpost there was critical for IWW organizing. But Centralia was also home to a powerful business class with a sizable investment in stomping out radical labor efforts. So on April 30, 1918, barely a month after they had opened, a mob stormed the Union Hall during a parade for the Red Cross. The parade was sponsored by the Employers Association of Washington, which was composed of several lumber barons. Armed with clubs and stones, the mob shattered every window and broke down doors, even tearing the siding off the outside of the building. The mob hauled out furniture, records, literature, posters, a typewriter, and even an American flag into the street, setting it all ablaze. A Victrola and a fine desk were auctioned off for the Red Cross. Lumber magnate F.B. Hubbard won the desk and donated it to the Centralia Chamber of Commerce. IWW members were thrown out into the street, 
beaten bloody and dumped on the outskirts of town, threatened with lynching if they ever returned. The Union secretary was kidnapped and taken to the woods, where he was made to run the gauntlet through a crowd of well-dressed businessmen who took turns flogging him, and he was also threatened with lynching if he returned. But return they did, again and again, and the tensions between business and labor in Centralia, in Washington, and in the whole country strained all the more. A year after the Red Cross parade attack, a mob targeted Tom Lassiter, a blind man who sold socialist and pro-labor literature out of his newsstand in town. One summer day, Tom found his newsstand had been broken into, and all his literature and personal belongings had been taken to a clearing in town and burned. He was warned to leave, but he announced that he would remain in Centralia as long as I damn please. He contacted a local attorney for help, but the two had a hard time getting authorities to take the newsstand destruction and the threat seriously. Then, a few weeks later, Lassiter was seized by several men, Chaplin describes them as businessmen, and dropped in a ditch just past the county line. You can imagine the challenges a blind man dropped in the middle of nowhere in 1919 might have finding his way home. But he did, with the help of his attorney, a man named Elmer Smith. Smith was well known for being sympathetic to labor and the IWW, and he took on defense cases that other lawyers wouldn't touch due to the political climate and class divides. He wasn't able to get county or state authorities to care much about Tom Lassiter's kidnapping, but it wasn't for lack of trying. He wrote to the governor of Washington, We in Centralia demand that the people who kidnapped Lassiter be prosecuted. I very much fear that this lawlessness is going to lead to bloodshed unless curbed. He received the governor's reply days later. There was nothing I can do. Tom Lassiter's attackers faced no consequences, and Tom himself was arrested shortly after his return on the charge of criminal syndicalism. He served several months in prison, and Elmer Smith's prophecy of lawlessness and bloodshed inched closer and closer. Smith had opened his law office in Centralia in 1916, but being young and somewhat shy, he had a hard time snagging clients. He worked as a public defender, and the clients he was assigned were working-class laborers, many of them loggers. Smith began seeking these sorts of men out, hanging out in restaurants and pool halls, and building a reputation with the workers of Centralia. Shockingly, he wasn't making much money from the local loggers, and Smith took a second job at Centralia High School as a substitute teacher. When America entered the war, Smith was incensed. The war benefited the upper class at the expense of the working class, he believed. Capitalism was responsible for this miserable conflict, and he said so. To his students, in class, it didn't go well. The principal at Centralia High School instituted an oath of allegiance to the United States that all teachers would be required to sign. Smith refused and resigned, and it wouldn't be the last time he traded his livelihood for his convictions. Elmer Smith was a traitor to his class, which made him very unpopular with the local well-to-dos. As if his work as a defense attorney wasn't enough, he had the gall to bring actual lawsuits against employers. He won a suit against the Centralia Chronicle for underpaying a young woman. He collected hundreds of dollars in back wages for workers who had been defrauded by their bosses. 
He taught them the dark art of bankruptcy law, used almost exclusively by the rich but just as effective against petty loan sharks when wielded properly. Smith filed suit against a company that had withheld a man's wages, leading to the starvation of his young daughter. He publicly blamed the corporation for the child's death. One day, a fellow Centralia lawyer named Warren O. Grimm, a man who had taken a very different professional path and was a prominent figure in the city, tried to talk sense into Elmer Smith. He asked, How would you feel if one of your clients would come up to you in public, slap you on the back, and say, Hello, Elmer? I'm sure Grimm thought he had Smith over a barrel, but he replied simply, Very proud. Grimm discouraged Smith from dealing with the likes of Tom Lasseter, saying of the kidnapping, That's the proper way to treat such a fellow. Handle the IWW cases if you want to, but sooner or later they're all going to be hanged or deported anyway. You'll get along all right if you will come in with us. Elmer Smith did not take him up on his offer. On June 26, 1919, a call to action graced the front page of the Centralia Hub. Businessmen and property owners of Centralia are urged to attend a meeting tomorrow in the Chamber of Commerce rooms to meet the officers of the Employers Association to confront the business and property interests of the state. At that meeting, the Citizens Protective League was established. F.B. Hubbard, president of the Eastern Railway and Lumber Company, who had appropriated the Wobblies table the year prior, was designated chairman of the league. There could be little doubt about the intentions of the Citizens Protective League. Now, it was just a matter of time before they made their next move. Things in Centralia heated up over the summer and into the fall. A lecturer came to town to speak on unionizing at a park next to Centralia's public library. Hecklers began to form at the edges of the crowd, and as they started to overtake the observers, Elmer Smith sensed danger. He stepped onto the stage to shake hands with the speaker and walked him back to the train depot, afraid that if he didn't escort him, he might face violence from the crowd. The next morning, he found a cardboard sign attached to the door of his law office. It read, Are you an American? You had better say so. Citizens Committee. And scrawled along the bottom, No more IWW meetings for you. On Labor Day, Warren O. Grimm, the attorney who had tried to talk sense into Elmer Smith, gave a fiery speech in which he used his wartime experience in Siberia to claim expertise on Bolshevism. Grimm served in the American Expeditionary Force Siberia, a reactionary folly that deserves its own series someday. He was stationed on guard duty along the Trans-Siberian Railway 100 miles north of Vladivostok. I have a very hard time imagining that he really got to know many Bolsheviks during the few months he shuffled between Siberia and Manchuria. Nonetheless, he warned the people of Centralia to beware the sinister American Bolsheviki, the industrial workers of the world. In another part of town, 5,000 workers and labor organizers from nearby lumber camps discussed their future in Centralia, with the more conservative Central Trades Council planning to build a new union hall there. But a far more consequential arrangement was being made on Labor Day in 1919. Britt Smith, no relation to Elmer, 
had decided that now was the time to re-establish a lasting wobbly presence in Centralia. The secretary for the local IWW, Britt, and I'll be referring to him as Britt and Elmer as Smith, just for clarity, Britt had found a suitable location for the new hall. The Roderick Hotel was owned by a 60-year-old couple named James and Marie McAllister, who were sympathetic to the IWW and willing to lease the ground floor of their hotel to them. Britt signed the lease, set up a living space for himself in the back of the hall, and posted a sign for the IWW local headquarters. The Wobblies were back in business. October saw a flurry of meetings regarding IWWism and the new hall, beginning on October 1st when F.B. Hubbard called for a meeting at the Elks Club for all citizens desiring to see law and order maintained. It's worth mentioning that the Centralia Elks Club was implicated in the first destruction of the IWW Hall in 2018, and the organization had just passed a resolution on July 9th, Flag Day, stating that No person shall be permitted to join or remain in our order who openly, covertly, directly, or indirectly gives aid, comfort, or support to the doctrines, practices, or purposes of the Bolsheviki, anarchists, the IWW, or kindred organizations. (sighs) That certainly covers a lot, doesn't it? The Elks have a long history of extreme racism. The founders were minstrel actors looking to skirt New York City liquor laws and reactionary Americanism. I imagine that the Elks didn't care much for the radical integration, pro-immigrant, and anti-racist principles the Wobblies espoused. About 100 businessmen attended this October 1st meeting, and they established the Centralia Citizens Protective Association to explicitly fight IWW organizing in the area. Two weeks later, veterans and business owners met to plan the first inaugural Armistice Day celebration for November 11th. There would be a parade with a banquet and a dance, and plenty of patriotic speeches to celebrate the boys in uniform. Then another meeting was advertised, this time urging employers to gather at the Elks Club on October 20th to discuss the IWW problem. This meeting was presided over by William Scales, a businessman and the commander of the Centralia Post of the brand-new veterans organization, the American Legion. The topic? How to Run the Wobblies Out of Town Once and for All You might remember the American Legion from our series on the business plot of 1933, when they were accused of being a cat's paw for big business in a scheme to overthrow President Roosevelt. Well, here they are accused of being a cat's paw of the Centralia business class and the lumber industry at large, and there's good reason to believe it. The Legion was a reactionary force from its very inception in 1919. The armistice that brought fighting to an end was signed in November of 1918, but it would be many months before the entire war effort could be demobilized, and troops were taken to hastily constructed debarkation camps where they had little to do but suffer and yearn for home. With Bolshevism becoming the number one boogeyman after the fall of the German Kaiser, American military leadership was desperate to keep their boys busy while they waited for a ship home. The Legion was established in Paris, France in March 1919, four months after fighting had ceased, to rededicate soldiers to the cause of Americanism and patriotism, to give them a sense of purpose and camaraderie, as well as a recreational outlet. When the men came home, they found local Legion posts throughout the country, and the organization helped them transition back into civilian life and lobbied the government on their behalf. 
But the Legion wasn't just dedicated to improving the lives of returning troops. It was also formed, specifically and openly, to combat left-wing doctrines, to smash any radicalizing forces, and very often to act as armed strikebreakers. There was red-hot resentment between veterans and laborers. Veterans resented workers who hadn't served but had the gall to interfere with industry for their own gain, and workers resented veterans for being class traders more devoted to private industry and profiteering, and the prestige that came with it, than to their own social and economic peers. It was a recipe for, well, reaction. This is how Ralph Chaplin characterizes the conversation among the Legionnaires that October 20th of 1919, based on the word of a handful of workers who attended the meeting to watch for trouble. The men began openly discussing the use of mob violence. The chief of police threw cold water on the idea, warning the men, The IWW is doing nothing wrong in Centralia, is not violating any law, and you have no right to drive them out of town in this manner. Even Warren's brother, the city attorney C.E. Grimm, agreed that there was no law they could use to eject the IWW from the city. Hubbard was furious, shouting, It's a damned outrage that these men should be permitted to remain in town. Law or no law, if I were chief of police, they wouldn't stay here 24 hours. Scales then offered, I'm not in favor of raiding the hall myself, but I'm certain that if anybody else wants to raid the IWW hall, there's no jury in the land that will ever convict them. It was decided that a more secretive organization than the Citizens Protective League or the Centralia Protective Association was needed to come up with an extra-legal solution to the Wobbly problem. Rumor had it that the committee was chaired by Warren Grimm and counted William Scales and F.B. Hubbard among its members. Its first task was to collect the name of every Wobbly in town so they could be dealt with one way or another. It was now an open secret that Centralia's business class had organized with the local Legion post to attack the IWW members and raid their hall during the parade planned for Armistice Day. In early November, with the plan on the lips of everyone in town as if it were a scandalous affair rather than an illegal act of mob violence, Britt Smith went to Elmer Smith's office looking for advice. What should they do? not if, but when, they were attacked. Smith advised Britt that they had the right to defend their property, their hall, and their lives if they were attacked first. But he encouraged him to ask for help through proper channels now before any defense was necessary. So on November 4th, Britt convened a meeting at the IWW Hall, and they decided to have a handbill printed to appeal to the citizens of Centralia to reject mob violence. No local printer would take the job, so they had to have a thousand copies printed in Tacoma and spent two days delivering the flyers from door to door. You can hear the original print of the handbill and several other historical documents relating to this saga at patreon.com slash reaction podcast. On the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, November 7th, the Bureau of Investigation conducted raids across the country to round up and deport radicals born abroad. Thus began the infamous Palmer Raids that targeted labor activists, particularly Italian and Jewish anarchists and communists. That same day in Centralia, the Armistice Day parade route was announced. It was a strange route, going farther uptown than any parade had gone before, and it doubled back on itself, passing the IWW Hall twice. 
There was now little doubt about the intentions of the Legion and the Chamber of Commerce and others organizing the parade. And because things like this come in threes, Warren Grimm was elected as the new commander of the local Legion post. It was rumored that the man he was replacing, William Scales, had resigned in protest of the planned attack, though Chaplin suggests it was just because Scales was a coward and not up to the task. In the window of the Roderick Hotel sat a red, wobbly songbook, a small sign of support from the McAllisters who rented the IWW their hall. Days before the parade, a legionnaire told Marie McAllister she'd better clean out that songbook and her tenants too, or the legion was going to do it for her. She went to the chief of police, A.C. Hughes, to ask for help protecting her property, but he told her that without any physical provocation, there was nothing he could do. In the event of a raid, he advised, As far as the Wobblies are concerned, they wouldn't last five minutes if the businessmen start after them. The businessmen don't want any Wobblies in town. Britt Smith also went to the mayor for help, but he was turned away entirely. At the weekly IWW meeting on November 9th, the mood was frantic. John Foss, veteran of the Spanish War and member of the IWW executive board, had given a talk about raising bail money for imprisoned Wobblies. But the men had a hard time listening. At the end of the meeting, Britt informed the men that Smith had assured them that they had the right to defend themselves and their hall should they be attacked. But there was disagreement among the men. Wobblies were typically unarmed and nonviolent by custom and relied more on intellectual agitation than physical confrontation. The question of arming themselves was particularly divisive. Many of the men were opposed to carrying guns, while others were certain their attackers would be armed. One of these men was Wesley Everest, a handsome and well-liked logger who was one of the most prominent men in the group, next to Brit. He was Chaplin's kind of logger, wild and rebellious, disrespecting of capitalist authority. To Everest, the facts were plain. They had a right to defend themselves, and if they didn't do so with every means available, then their lives weren't worth much anyway. He told the group, When those fellows come, they will come prepared to clean us out, and this building will be honeycombed with bullets inside of ten minutes. With Everest's words ringing in their ears, the men dispersed. The only concrete plan, some men would be armed, others would not, and no shots would be fired unless the hall was attacked. Unless... But in the electric atmosphere of Centralia, unless felt a lot more like until. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>